Welcome to The Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 20, Continuous Improvement and the Tin Hats. Have you had your lean thinking history lessons? We're told that what we call lean is derived from the Toyota production system, and that's true. But there's more to the story. Lean principles are found in many places and situations beyond Toyota. That is what this podcast is all about. You may know the story of the P-51 Mustang fighter aircraft and how it was developed in a record 12 months during World War II, which is often touted as an example of lean thinking and lean product development outside of Toyota. My guest, Ruth Stanley, has another wartime story of lean thinking to share, and it is about a member of her own family. Ruth Stanley is the founder of Boan Consulting, and she is ASQ's Deputy Region Director for the Canada Greenland region. She's a blogger, a storyteller, a presenter, a mentor, and the author of A Different Kind of Bombshell, The Tin Hat's Journey Through World War II. Ruth Stanley, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Hello. It's really nice to have you here today, and it's exciting because it is shortly after your new book has been published, so I know it's a very exciting week for you. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, how you came to, uh, to write this book. Well, uh, it's actually quite an interesting story. My father was an entertainer during World War II. And how it started was we started getting requests from reporters for my father to speak to them. And as I started to hear more and more of the stories, I was absolutely hooked. He was uh, actually a female impersonator with the Canadian military. Oh, my gosh. So that got my attention. (laughs) I'm sure it did. Was that something that you knew about when you grew up, as you were growing up? No, not really. Not really. I knew he was um, an entertainer and he was a theater person, but Mm -hmm. no, I had no idea. Ruth, it would be great if you could read to us just a, a little bit from your book. And I'd like you to read from page 22, just so we can have a picture of your dad. I have a picture of my father in his first army uniform. He is certainly very young, barely 19 years old and very slim. His uniform fits him snugly, but his army beret seems almost too large for his head. He looks a very serious young man. I wonder what is going through his mind as he enters this new phase in his life. I can see him squaring his shoulders and lifting his chin, trying to look just a little bit older. And so what year was that when he, uh... 
he was first uh was he and actually this was in canada right so was he drafted or did he enlist uh he enlisted he enlisted and and so what year was that uh this was uh september 5th 1939 it's oh my just war was uh declared wow wow so it's very brave of him what was really charming is that he enlisted with his father and right away they, they said to his father, he was too old, but his father stayed with him throughout the whole process. Through, through training and? Uh, no, sorry. Uh, through the whole process of enlistment. Uh, uh, oh, 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 through enlisting. But then at the end, dad had to leave, I guess. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Right. Wow. So 1939, that was a very unsettled time in the world. And uh, Canada was not involved um, in the war, um, uh, really, at, at that point. So for someone to go and enlist, uh, to me, that is a tremendous act of courage. And um, I think, you know, good heartedness to do that for the world. So do you think at that moment, when you're thinking of him in that picture, the young man and his, this 19 year old um, in this army uniform, did he have any idea, do you think, of how he was gonna end up serving? No, he had no idea. <laughs> he had no idea. It just never entered his head that he would become a female impersonator, but he found out that he actually did it very well. Why did the Canadian Army want someone to be a female impersonator? So at the time, uh, they knew that there was a morale problem or would continue to be a morale problem with all of these thousands of men who were overseas for the first time in their life. They were missing their, their moms, their, their wives, their girlfriends, their sweethearts. Mm. They were away from home for the very first time, so they needed something to keep their morale up. And at, the, at that time, women were not allowed on, um, on the front. So any kind of theater production could only involve men. So at the same time, what, what, what the guys wanted was women and song and laughter and how did you provide that? Well, you had to have one of your guys play one of the female parts. Which is actually a tradition in the theater, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah going, going all the way back to Shakespeare and, and, and before that, 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 that many female roles were played by men. So your dad fell into this, I'm guessing partly because he was a, he was a slim guy. What else about it made him a, a good... Uh, a good performer. So he um, he could read music. He could sight read music, actually. And uh, he had a good memory. He could also sing in a, in a very light tenor voice. And one of the advantages is this happened right when he enlisted. Uh, a former member of the Dumbbells, which was a, a very similar... Uh, military entertainment unit in the First World War, Howard Large was actually from Regina, and he took one look at my dad and said, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. 
so in a way he was drafted into that into that role basically he had a drag mom <laughs> a drag mom that's that's great um so so your dad becomes involved in this troupe uh, and the name of the troupe was the tin hats the tin hats and where did they go so they toured in every theater of war during the second world war except for the pacific so they they toured daily around uh, england scotland uh they toured around north africa italy and canada and then finally um in the european theater my goodness and and for the canadians then who were overseas, as you're saying, for the first time. I'm thinking nowadays they'd they'd be making jokes about Tim Hortons, but what kind of what what kind of humor would do you know were they uh, were they looking for? Just basically the in jokes that would be something that everyone could uh, understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, to begin with, it was. Uh, the disciplinarian, the sergeant major, look what we have to put up with, with these people. Uh, That got old gradually Mm -hmm. because uh, there were other experiences that they they went through, particularly during combat. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, among army types, it's the black humor that seems to get them through. So they began to make jokes about bombs, every possible scenario with bombs and you'd think oh my god how can they laugh at that but it it seemed to make them they make them laugh uh they actually integrated bombing into their their shows uh one of the band members was actually a very talented cellist and he was able to reproduce the sound the sound of an air raid with his cello uh they incorporated uh, skits where a bomb would go off and someone would jump behind uh, some furniture. And they said it sounded fairly realistic. They'd use drums or they'd uh, incorporate bombs into their their skits. Uh, The reason why they also integrated the bombs is that they often did their shows during bombing raids. Oh my gosh. So what would happen is um, a buzz bomb would go off and uh, one of the comics would say, exactly. (laughs) So uh, it was uh, was a very fluid way of entertaining. Uh, They could change up their routines, ad lib, all kinds of different things. But it was basically what would resonate with the soldiers? What would make them laugh? What would make them think? Even what would make them feel? So it was all integrated into what they did. So constant experimentation then, I guess, of trying out a joke or a song, seeing does it work? Does it get a laugh? Does it get a sigh? Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the name of your book is A Different Kind of Bombshell. So so that's you've been telling us about, there it is, A Different Kind of Bombshell by Ruth Stanley, um, which is available on uh, Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble, right? That's right. So so check that out. The book is called Different 
a different kind of bombshell. You've been telling us about these bomb jokes. What's the connection? So when I was looking at the story, it struck me that there are all kinds of bombshells. There are surprises. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are the actual bombshells. And then there are the, you know, the typical blonde bombshells. So all of that seemed to fit into the story. So, so your dad was the, the different kind of bombshell in a, in a wig and a dress, I guess. That's right. Yeah. 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 So Ruth, uh, you and I know each other because we're both in the women in lean and we, we know we came to know each other through lean and continuous improvement. What's your background in lean? What, what, what is, what's your career been about? So I came to lean very late in my career, um, but I began to understand how much of it I understood. Uh, I had spent uh, 25 years in the Canadian federal government mm-hmm. as a business planner. So without knowing it, I was using Hoshin Canry to do my planning. Uh, I knew about the voice of the customer and how to get that voice of the customer. I worked on risk. Um, We did stakeholder analyses, um, environmental plans, SWOT analyses, all of those Uh many tools that you use during Lean. And it was just at the end of my career that uh, Lean started to go. And I realized, my goodness, I have been doing value stream mapping since the beginning. It just had a different name and a different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So around the time that I was about to retire for the first time, uh, I, I went, wow. Where have you been throughout my career? It's wow. And to know that there were people who taught this stuff, could explain this stuff, had really been there. And I thought, yeah, I'm hooked. So, so did you, uh, did you um, become involved in any organizations? Yes, I became involved with the American Society for Quality. I just was one of those things that happened. Uh, one of my my colleagues said, hey, I'm going to be speaking at the local chapter. Would you like to come along? And as I said, then I discovered, wow, there's all these people who do the same thing that I do. Yeah. This is wonderful. And uh, I, begin, I began to, to build from there initially when I was working. And then I took on a leadership job with uh, the local section and uh, worked my way up to be regional director for Canada Greenland. I just recently stepped back a little bit and uh, I'm now a deputy regional director just to keep my hand in a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When we were talking at first about the book, Ruth, you shared with me, the, with me that you thought there was a lean story in your book. And um, I think that 
is really the case. And I would love for you to, to tell us a little bit about how do you connect lean continuous improvement with this, you know, this incredible story of the tin hats of, of your, your dad, these brave men who were going to front lines to entertain the troops. How was how that all connected? And, and where did you see that first start to pop out as you were researching your dad's story? Uh, my very first impression was how much they were geared to the voice of the customer. They truly understood their audience, partly because they were soldiers themselves. They mm -hmm. were not aid entertainers, they were soldiers. They had to go through basic training. They learned how to clean and shoot a gun, <laughs> had to march like everyone else. Uh, they had to survive the same difficult and challenging situations. So they really understood their audience. The other thing that um, really struck me about them is their objective was set. They were to maintain the morale of, of the, the soldiers, but their intent all the time and everything they did was to provide some comfort and a taste of home. And what really struck me through some of my father's stories and writings was that they didn't just do that during the show. They did it before. They did it afterwards, even when no one was looking. So there's a really wonderful story of a young man came up to my father and said, well, which was a little odd, you're the first English woman I've seen since I got here. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, thank you. And he said it made him think about his girl back home. And he says, you know, my best friend was killed today, and I, I'd really like it if you would sing White Christmas for me. And so my dad took him to a place out of the way and quietly sang it for him while he wept. So this wasn't a performance. This was a very human act. And, and that really touched me. I thought he really, and he wasn't the only one, he really incorporated and lived that voice of the customer, even when no one was looking. Um, there were many, there were quite a few instances of that kind of thing. Uh, another very touching part was, this was in, in Italy, they had already done two shows during the day. And they decided to do a third for what they called the boys in the bay. These were wounded who were just waiting for transportation. They couldn't sit up, they couldn't go anywhere. And it wasn't scheduled for them to have a performance, but they decided to add a third performance that day just for those guys who were lying on stretchers, probably in agony, but would appreciate hearing the songs. I, Beautiful. 
Beautiful. And it's and and you're saying that's the voice of the customer, but it's it's more than voice of the customer, right? It's 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 empathy. You know what what your what your dad did in singing White Christmas, that was an act of empathy, a of custom of empathy and of respect for people. And um, you know, I think in wartime we don't necessarily think that there is such a thing as respect for people, but but they demonstrated oh. it in so many ways. Oh, heavens, there was there was more to that is that they showed appreciation for everything and other people did for them. So there was always a thank you for the person who organized their venue. There was a special shout out to the unit that they visited that actually cleaned up the place so that they yeah. could perform. And this was a sense that this gratitude was very important for the entire effort. It's everyone has a place and, and a, a reason for being in the war. And this was something that they worked on every day to make sure everyone felt that they belonged and what they did was important. There was more, more sort of lean going on than even that, the, the customer empathy and the respect for people, right? Because, right? because we already talked a little bit about the experimentation that, you know, they had to, they had to experiment with every, I'm sure every show was probably in some respects an experiment. But what, was there a standard that they started with? Yes. Uh, what they would do was they would have a, um, oh, goodness. It's <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> so they, they would have a standard show that they would have developed. So mm -hmm. they knew the songs that they wanted to sing. They, they had a general outline for their skits. Um, they had the instrumental pieces. So they started with something and uh, practice was a huge part of what they did. Obviously, for anything in, in the theater world and the music world, uh -huh. practice is important. So the practice was so that they could work together, get their cues right. But what was really extraordinary was that Anything that happened, whether it was the electricity going out, which happened frequently, <laughs> whether it was people getting sick or uh, otherwise incapacitated, uh, which was known in Italy with all the wine going around, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, dysentery happening, that mm. someone suddenly was not able to perform, that the rest, they would hastily rearrange the, the, the show. Uh, what was also very interesting is that the variety of venues that they played in, so they would come to a venue and within about two hours, they would reorganize their show based on, believe it or not, the available space. Mm. So, there's one picture that I that I saw that was actually with the National Film Board showing one of their performances in Italy, where they literally had a stage that was about uh, 
maybe 16 feet square. There were 12 people on that stage. <laughs> so everything they did, they had to do it in about that space. And to even, they couldn't walk around. So what they did was they would make their expressions bigger, their hand signals to, to convey emotion rather than, because they just didn't have the space, you know? So really, really interesting. And, and I can just imagine that as they were traveling from place to place, that they had, you know, obviously they had to move things, um, yeah. you know, so there was transportation involved. What did you learn about how they handled transportation and, and how they were managed to conserve and, and, and avoid waste as they were doing that? So the first thing that they had was they had a very compact inventory. Uh, it seems like a lot. Uh, but for what they wanted to do, it was actually very small. Uh, they had uh, two three-ton trucks for their entire uh, stage equipment, their pianos. Apparently, they had two, two to three, uh, all of their instruments. And so they managed to pack it all in, the, in, the, in these uh, two three-ton lorries, basically. Um, they... had no inventory other than their stage equipment. They didn't uh, take their, uh, they didn't take food with them. Uh, they didn't have their own trucks. So what they would do is they would be taken on strength by a certain unit that would come and pick them up and then feed them when they were there, provide their accommodations. What would also happen is that for a week, they would stay with one unit and then tour the district. So the uh, military establishments were so dense in uh, Southern England for the Canadians that they would travel maybe between five kilometers to 20 kilometers to go in the district. So that was that way that they uh, conserved their time and, mm -hmm. and petrol or, or gas, as they say here. Gas, yeah, yeah. Can you tell me about the map behind you, Ruth. So for those of you who are listening, uh, Ruth is, uh, is sitting in um, a room that has a map behind her. It looks like England. And there are little, uh, I don't even know what they are, little, little, uh, little marks that somebody has made on that map. So they traveled every single day. And... Uh, my boys actually got me a, uh, one of those maps for Christmas that I could uh, write on. So yeah. I plotted all of the places that they had gone to. So it gave me a sense of the area and the magnitude of, of their travel, basically. And of course, at the time that they were doing that, that would have been a time when there probably would have been some bombardments happening. And uh, yeah. And uh, army bases and air bases would have been targets. So it must have been quite, uh, I say, dangerous. In England, uh, not so much during the day. Uh, at night, it was more at night, yeah. Uh, but in Italy, it was very dangerous. Uh, the, as I, I may have mentioned, that um, the bombings happened while they were traveling during their shows and when they got to their billets. 
In fact, um, <clears throat> many of their billets, they get there and uh, they were full of shell holes and, and they still had to sleep in these um, damp, cold places. And then get up and do a show the next day. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. But, but, uh, but the other guys had to get up and probably go fight something, so. Yes, they did have a slightly more cushy existence. <laughs> slightly, slightly more cushy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, two words in, in, in lean thinking that I just think are really important and we don't talk about very much are Murray and, uh, and, and uh, Muda and Murray, which is, which is unevenness and um, overburden. And um, even those of us who are lean practitioners, I think really struggle with overburden. We, you know, we, we take on more than we can, that we can do. Uh, work is uneven and, and so on and so forth. And one of the things that you told me about was, was how the tin hats handled those two problems. Of course, they didn't have the language that we have to talk about them, but, uh, but what did they do? So basically, they um, would reschedule uh, their appoint their their shows, uh -huh. uh, and also there were uh, their uh, commanding officer was always doing a pulse check, seeing how how well they were doing, and. Uh, there were a couple instances where he said uh, the lads were working on their last nerve. It's time to take a break. Um, he was also very concerned about um, some of the conditions that they were they were having to work in. Uh, they often talked talked about the soupy mud <laughs> that <laughs> was uh, ruining their their tents. There wasn't time to dry them out between performances, um, wrecking their uniforms, making them look rather sloppy. So occasionally he would, I guess you can say, pull the end on. Yeah. <laughs> and say, okay, enough. They need a rest. They cannot continue like this. Uh, so the other, per the other overburden was... Uh, in some of the tours, particularly in Scotland, uh, the population was starved for entertainment. So what would happen is that they would do their two shows during the day and then at night do a dance party for the, the local people. So this meant that they would sometimes not get home and to their barracks until the middle, the middle of the night, more mm. or less. And so uh, they continued on for a couple of months doing this. And again, the uh, commanding officer said, no more time for rest. We can't continue like this. But what was more interesting is how fluid their uh, schedule was that depending on what was happening, they might decide to make other arrangements. So for instance, uh, just before uh, major exercises, the audience numbers would diminish. And then they go, oh, okay, obviously these people in this area are busy. We're gonna go somewhere else. So they did that twice. When there were major exercises uh, being 
started in southern England, they went up to to Scotland to tour. Mm. Sounds like they had a really effective lean leader in their commanding officer, who probably would have no idea if we were talking about that in front of him, what 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 he meant. What that meant. What yeah. that meant. Yeah. What was interesting was that it was a culture of looking after their men. Uh, During uh, one of the years, I think it was 1943, they had seven or eight different commanding officers, but each one treated them the same way. Oh my. So it it was part of the culture then? It was, it was very much part of the culture and it showed also that uh, their performances were very much a part of military life and, and, and needed and, and appreciated. Highly valued. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ruth, um, you know, one of the things that, that I observed about my own father who served in the Royal Air Force um, during World War II was that it was very hard to get him to talk about his experiences during the war. What about your dad? Very little, uh, but what was interesting were the things that he did say. And I can remember him talking about spam or bully beef and just uh, the shiver that would go through him yeah. going, never again. <laughs> or uh, I just recently realized that this was actually a reg- uh, regulation that soldiers could have no more than five inches of water in their bath. And that was one thing that came over and over again. It's like, huh, six inches of water. What do you do with that? You know, or uh, the third thing that actually was quite dramatic for me. And it made me really think about what the war may have said or done to him. Uh, I can't remember whether it was me or, or my, my sister suddenly decided that we wanted to take uh, a motorcycle road ride. And my quiet, good-natured father just took an absolute fit and said, no daughter of mine is getting on a motorcycle. I saw too many dispatch shots. Oh, my goodness. That was the only time I ever had a sense of how much it affected him and what he may have seen. But the rest, no, no, it it came out much later. And I would say most of the information that I got was when my father was interviewed for a book Mm -hmm. and on a National Film Board documentary. It was more than I ever got. Yeah. So anyway, he told other people these stories. And, and it's funny that the things yeah. that he related to you were about the spam and the five inches of water, sort of jokey things. But, That's but right. yeah, but not about not about, as you say, perhaps some of the more serious things or the traumatic things that he was involved in. So very- what really what really struck me was that team that they built over the years. They mm-hmm kept in touch with each other 
over their entire lives. Oh my. And there were some that who lived not too far away uh, from us, and they would occasionally come to visit. And what really struck me was how fond they were of my father. So just think about all of the lessons that you learn about teamwork. They were there for each other. They worked together. They performed together. They played together. They misbehaved together. <laughs> and they were just the ultimate team where it was, you know, everything about the team. There were no divas in the performances. Yeah. They made the performances that everyone got equal time. Everybody got a chance to contribute to the, the performance, to create the performance. Uh, excuse me. <coughs> Even uh, one of the most extraordinary things that I heard was that they did a performance for uh, one of the bases in Northern Africa, and they incorporated the talents of Russian POWs. So they just put a show up, just kind of like that, incorporating Russian singing POWs. And uh, one of the musicians was really handy at just, he could just hear music and jot down an entire orchestral arrangement just wow. on a piece of paper. And uh, he settled on a Russian folk song that had been translated into English. And uh, so they sang it together. So that's welcoming diversity, that's welcoming other members to the team and mm -hmm. making them feel, feel special with what they can contribute. It was to me, the ultimate teamwork. It, it certainly sounds that way. And, and, the, and you saying that these were people who kept in touch with each other, uh, for the rest of their lives, um, you know, that indicates that it is a really deep bond. You know, it's not something that just, just, just ends when they, um, when they leave the service. That's right. Yeah. Ruth, what, when you, when you think back on your dad and then, you know, what your work, you know, what you ended up doing in your work, is there a connection there for you with um, who, who your dad was and, and, uh, I think so. Um, I look at all of what he did after the war, and he was essentially a communicator. Uh, during the war, he uh, entertained. After the war, he became a journalist. And after that, he became um, uh, sort of a media slash uh, public relations person. So what that said to me was that his purpose in life was to communicate. And I think I do the same. I do it in so many yeah. different ways. And uh, I never really thought about it. Uh, my mom was the dominant uh, part of my upbringing. But I, I realized that I was watching him as I grew up and 
incorporated many of the, the things that he did. Um, I would say definitely a, a much bigger influence than I ever dreamed. Yeah. Tell me about the process of writing the book. So you, you, you got the inspiration to write the book. What happened next? I read everything I could possibly find. <laughs> uh, so I started with the uh, the seminal book that uh, gave me the idea of going, uh -huh. going deeper. It was called uh, One of the Boys. It was actually about gays in the military. Uh -huh. Now, what made me really think hard about my father's experience was the assumptions that people make. Just because he wore a dress, they assumed he was gay. And, and it wasn't so. So it, it made me go, I, I need to look deeper into this. Yeah. yeah. And so I got um, copies of their war diaries. The war diaries were something that every unit was required to write on a daily basis. And uh, most of it was dates and, and places and uh, how big their audience was, but it was those little anecdotes that went, that ran through this, that really started me thinking, uh, excuse me. <coughs> so I started looking to see if there were any newspaper articles and uh, there were some, again, with these, just these little snippets of things. But yeah. as, as I started to pull them together, it started to really bring together quite a story. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, I did have a few snippets of things that my father had written. Uh, being a journalist, he was great at writing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he didn't write much. Uh, he started too late in his life, and uh, but there were a few, and I was able to incorporate some of what he felt. Um, what I also did was I had to engage in a lot of lateral thinking just to try and piece uh, uh, something together. So I had some, just a few snippets of songs that they may have performed, uh, some of the skits they may have had. Mm -hmm. So I started looking farther into what these songs may have represented. And what I found was that each one of these songs had something to do with Canadian culture, Canadian artists, Canadian um, pinup girls. <laughs> <laughs> so all of them were constructed to respond to the soldiers in some way. They go, Bet you that is so-and-so. Even to their costumes, they were actually channeling some of the pinup girls that the soldiers would remember, and they were Canadian ones. So that was, that was really cool to say, okay, I know this part, so which little channel should I start looking for? So, so it, was a, it was a dive into 
Canadian culture and history as well as your dad's history then. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it. What did you learn about your dad that has re that really has stuck with you as a result of writing the book? Um, you talked about what you've learned from, from observing him as you grew up, but what did you learn from writing the book that you would that you would sort of want to pass on to other people as something important? Basically, um, a can-do attitude is just try it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just see where it goes. <laughs> and if it doesn't work, well, try something else. Um, to me, that was huge. And that's exactly what the lean world says. Yeah. Just try it out. And the second thing that resonated with me was it's not that bad. You can, you can manage and do things. They might not go the way you want, but you can always either change your attitude or do something about it. And this was very strong for me. Um, it was the being able to pick up the pieces and go, oh, well, could have been worse. <laughs> could have been worse, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. So, again, that's, that's something that resonates with me with the way we talk in Women in Lean and uh, some of the things that I've experienced in, in the working world. You go, okay. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, Ruth, can you tell us one more time the name of your book and where to get it? Ah, okay. A Different Type of Bombshell. And uh, it's available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble. I think it's called Book Depository. It's, it's in England. Okay, great. Thank you. Ruth, thank you so much for taking me on a journey to the edges of lean with your dad. Your book is, is absolutely a loving, wonderful tribute to a wonderful person, and you are to be congratulated on it. Oh, thank you. This is Bella Engelberg, and I'd like to thank Ruth Stanley for being my guest on the edges of lean. What lean stories can you learn from your family's past? No matter where you listen, your ratings, reviews, and comments are greatly appreciated, so feel free to reach out. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbein. This is a Lean for Humans production.